This forum is part of the City Club's Authors in Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful for their generous support. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Wednesday, March 9th. I'm Kay Rodolfi, Vice President of um, Advancement for the Cleveland Foundation and also City Club Vice President. It's my pleasure to welcome you to today's forum in partnership with the Cuyahoga County Public Library and part of our Authors in Conversation series. Thanks to the support from our friends at Cuyahoga Arts and, Co and Culture and the John P. Murphy Foundation. The debate over free speech on college and university campuses has become a dominant issue facing higher education. The establishment of free speech zones, safe spaces, and protests over views expressed by faculty or invited speakers have ignited fierce controversy from both the right and the left. Now students and faculty are reporting that they fear speaking honestly or with those they disagree, and an increase in divisive issues like the COVID pandemic have added yet another stressor to the situation. How did we get here? And do these issues point to a larger societal problem? Our speaker here today thinks so. Greg Lukianoff is an attorney, New York Times best-selling author, and president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Greg has testified before both the US Senate and House of Representatives about free speech issues on college campuses. In his latest book, The Coddling of the American Mind, he argues that new problems on college campuses stem from a culture of safetyism, which interferes with young people's social, emotional, and intellectual development, all contributing to the growing strain on our country's social fabric. We are also delighted to welcome Rick Jackson, senior host and producer at IdeaStream Public Media. Rick will be our moderator today. Members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming Greg Lukianoff and Rick Jackson. Thank you, Kay. Uh, four words I wanted to underscore that she said there, a larger societal problem. That's where Greg likes to dig in. That's where we're going to go. Welcome to Cleveland. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Yeah, thank, uh, thank you so much for having me. Good to have you here. Long two, time coming. Two years late. <laughs> <laughs> we will spend a little time in background, really, for people who haven't read the book. Then we'll dive into some of your revelations since and your observations and your new writing since 2018. His um, addendum is now longer than the book is, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the afterword, it got yeah, very Yeah, it long. is. The early chapters are said about a destructive and illiberal idea that emerged near simultaneously on lots of American campuses in the years 2014 to 2016. You wrote Coddling of the American Mind later, acclaimed when it first hit the shelves. People were out to get it right away. It talks right up front, though, about three, quote, terrible ideas now woven into American childhood education. Those ideas, for those of you who haven't read, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Always trust your feelings. And life is a battle between good people and evil people. So to begin, Greg, just kind of walk us through those terrible ideas. Sure. Uh, <laughs> happy to. Um, so the backstory on Coddling the American Mind is I had a um, mental breakdown in 2007. Um, I w had already been working on college campuses since 2001. I was a lifelong, uh, I wanted to, be on, uh, wanted to be a First Amendment lawyer, it's why I went to law school in the first place. And it was a very lonely thing defending free speech on college campuses back in those days. Um, there, you, you constantly felt gaslit by both the right and the left um, who wouldn't, didn't seem to care about when someone on the other side was getting in trouble. 
Um, and part, part of uh, that experience is what you know, gave me the breakdown in 2007. So as I was recovering, I, the thing that really saved my life and why I don't, um, you know, uh, I, I believe I don't really have those bouts of depression that I had <clears throat> my whole life was cognitive behavioral therapy. And just a uh, quick show of hands, how many people know about CBT? Oh, great, that, that, a, good, a good chunk. So uh, I won't belabor it too much. But basically, the incredible revelation about CBT is that if you train yourself not to um, sort of humor the exaggerated voices in your head that tell you you're doomed or that nothing's going to work out for you or that date that you just had hates your guts or even if they did, um, that <laughs> everything you feel you have to do something immediately about, um, uh, learning to cultivate the habits of identifying cognitive distortions in my own head really addressed my own depression. And I was watching what I was seeing on campus and being like, well, this is kind of funny. It seems like administrators are telling students, do overgeneralize, do engage in emotional reasoning, do catastrophize, do mind read, do all of these distorted things. But also at the same time, well, thank goodness students aren't buying this argument. And then, it, right at the end of 2013 and beginning in 2014, like lightning struck, um, the students who had always been the best constituency for free speech on campus since I started in 2001, they weren't just demanding that more people be disinvited or demanding new speech codes, they were also making a medicalized argument about it. They were basically saying that we can't have this speaker here because it will be psychologically harmful, usually not to me, but to some other you know, undis right. undisclosed, undisclosed group. So we wrote an article about it in 2015, and then we wrote a book about it in 2018. And for the book, we basically tried to, uh, tried to say, it's as if we are giving um, a generation of students the worst possible advice that is not sound in terms of ancient wisdom traditions um, or in terms of psychological health. And we believe that people who believe these ideas are going to psychologically suffer. I mentioned when the book came out, there was a lot of acclaim for it. Uh, some of the first critics, I'm not going to read all the critics' writings, but one said, safetyism undermines the freedom of inquiry and speech indispensable to universities. They credited you with shining a light into the corners of acceptance. It resonated in a lot of places, but it also put a spotlight on you. Did that acclaim change you? Did it acclaim change the foundation for individual rights and in education? It definitely raised our profile. Um, I mean, I, I'm ultimately fairly introverted as a person. Um, you know, like I was... Gotta admit, you know, COVID was not the worst thing in the world for me. <laughs> Getting to be in the woods with my kids was kind of great. Um, I live in downtown DC. I like cities, but I don't like crowds, um, you know, essentially. I do think that the fact that we were uh, shown to be on to something did help um, give, give uh, my organization credit for its successes. Oh, and by the way, um, every copy of Coddling the American Mind, some portion of that goes to, to, the, to the fire. Um, to my organization. I, I usually don't always mention that because I realize some people don't necessarily like um, you know, <laughs> my organization. But for those of you who do, you should know that, that uh, some of the proceeds always go, go there. Um, in terms of you know, the, the change, I would say the most positive change it's had is actually really quite personal. Um, occasionally people will write me saying that they're really struggling psychologically uh, and they want my help and you know I have a whole you know, for, you know first question is are you currently a danger to yourself um, right. you know I've had lots of people reach out to me privately to talk about their own struggles and that's definitely been on a, on a, set, on a level of satisfaction the, like one of the most rewarding parts of writing the book. This book came out pre-pandemic yeah. and like everything else the world has changed because of that. Yep. When you and I were talking earlier, you said that things really have gotten remarkably worse yeah. since the time you put the book out. Explain for folks how. 
Yeah, um, so I saw this change on campus around 2015, 2014, 2015. Generally, if you were gonna get in trouble on a college campus prior to 2013, 2014, it was from an administrator, um, oftentimes an abuse of power, sometimes, you know, uh, um, sometimes, you know, uh, making claims that, that ended up not panning out. Um, and then we had the change with the students actually being in more agreement with, with the, uh, you know, the, 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 the enlightened censorship as they thought, they, they thought. And from 2015 on, the number of disinvitations went up, the number of attempts to get professors, for lack of a better word, canceled went, went up. Um, but it seemed to be kind of leveling out around 2019. And then with COVID, it just shot up. Um, we, we keep stats on how many attempts there have been to get professors either sanctioned or punished for what they say, for their expression of opinion, for what their research, for what they say in class. Um, and that skyrocketed. We, we currently have about 550 uh, you know, um, documented examples of professors uh, being attempts to get them canceled that are about two-thirds successful. But about 65% of that 550 happened since 2020. So 2020 was easily the worst year I've, I've seen in my career. And I saw a lot of careers ruined in, in 2020, oftentimes for things that people said that were you know, unfairly misinterpreted. Um, often for things that, that they thought they said in private. Um, it's been two of the worst years I've seen. 2020 was the worst year I'd seen in terms of attempts to get professors fired, uh, only followed by 2021. Classrooms, boardrooms, mm -hmm. airwaves, parking lots. These discussions are happening everywhere. Yep. And everybody has the same thought that only my thought is right, all others be damned. Yes. What's happening to professors now who dare cross the line? I know you wanted to get specific. Uh, Professors teach what they believe yeah. instead of the commonality that the classroom wants. Well, what's interesting is how often professors get in trouble for teaching something they don't necessarily believe, like put, putting an argument out there. So there was a case at St. John's University that I thought was particularly illustrative around 2020. And this is a professor of history who was teaching um, a class on the Columbian Exchange, another word for the um, when the Europeans discovered um, the New World, and that led to a lot of historical events. You know, uh, in, uh, everything from the way of what we eat to creation of wealth to very negative outcomes like the in increase in, in slavery. Um, and this is the kind of question that you absolutely should be talking about if you're going to be a serious student of history. We have the entire um, uh, deck of slides that he showed during this, but um, so you can see this for yourself. You don't have to mm -hmm. believe me. Um, but the claim was, uh, a couple days later, that he had demanded that students defend slavery, um, and that was not okay, and he needed to be fired. There were 30 students in his class, and he got 300 uh, complaints, which was a little bit, uh, a little bit interesting, too. Um, and, they, and, and, and they suspended this guy. They, they, they fired him after that. And it's one of those things where you can, you know, again, Look, look, look at this uh, at your, yourself, and it was a very unfair thing to do. And of course, the fact that students have these attitudes in the first place I find troubling. The fact that administrators uh, are actually acting um, to fulfill uh, this without actually standing up for academic freedom, free speech, or the process of, listen, this is supposed to get you thinking about difficult questions. That's part of the scholarly process um, is something that I've been very disappointed by. Hence the word coddling. Yeah. Well, coddle, I've never liked the word. I, I actually went it's into your the- book. I, I, <laughs> absolutely. It, it, it's, it's been really funny because I originally wrote the, so coddling originally came from an article um, that, that I wrote in 2015 with Jonathan Haidt, my co-author. Uh, I wanted to call it the extremely boring, 
arguing towards misery, um, <laughs> which is more accurate to my point, though. Um, and then when we decided to, and I, and I, I, I uh, accepted it over protest, people are going to see coddling, they're going to think I'm saying kids are spoiled, and that's not actually what we're saying. I'm saying that we're doing them a disservice. And then when we got the book contract in 2018, I was like, I'll be damned if this book is called Coddling of the American Mind. <laughs> and I told everybody this, there's no way. And we, sold, we, we sold the contract under the, um, we got the contract under the title Disempowered. Because I really wanted to emphasize that this is a way of disempowering younger people, setting them up for, um, for harms that they don't have to face um, if, if you educated them in a, in a more healthy way. And at pretty much at the last moment, the, the publisher was, Literally, like the distributors, um, you know, uh, will pull out unless you actually call it the original title because they thought it was better marketing. And I was like, and by this time, Height totally agreed with me. Um, and it's like, okay, whatever. I guess I'm stuck with coddling the American mind for the rest of my life. It worked. Okay. <laughs> Folks, he actually asked for some time to talk about specific people, yeah. professors who've been targeted. You have examples Stephen mm. Salida, mm. Richard Paxton, Mike Adams. Enlighten us to their missteps, their punishments, and then their tracks post-professorship. Yeah, Stephen Salida is a case that I, I, I got decent attention, but probably not as much attention as it deserved. Mm -hmm. This was a professor at University of Illinois Champaign, I believe, um, and he was a, uh, he, in addition to being a professor, he was an activist um, for the Palestinian cause in Israel. Um, and he had just, he was a, uh, he had just gotten invited to, to become a professor, become a tenured professor at, at UIC. And during the, um, one, of the, one of the Gaza conflicts, I think around 2014 um, or 2015, um, he sent out some tweets that were not exactly temperate, um, but sent, you know, talking about how, um, you know, uh, picking on Benjamin Netanyahu for being you know, bloodthirsty for Palestinian kids. Edgy stuff. Um, unquestionably protected, uh, but a donor complained to UIC and they revoked um, the, uh, the, the professor's um, uh, employment uh, offer, which was horrifying because he had given up his job at the other place and he hadn't right. quite started yet. He was supposed to start within either days or weeks of that. Um, and he's currently driving a bus um, last time we checked in, um, losing his career for something that was very clearly protected. And it is a case that I think people should know about. I just, and I hate, I actually kind of resent the fact that I, that I, that I feel the need to do this, to be frank. I'm a political liberal. I'm, I'm a lifelong Democrat. Um, and uh, the, way I, the, the, the way I deal with people debating on campus, it turns into this very, very quickly. It's kind of like, um, well, that's a right-wing opinion, or that's a left-wing opinion. We, we argue in this very kind of sad kind of way, as if someone you disagree with could not possibly be correct on, any, uh, on anything else. It's not you, it's your label. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And it is important, though, to, to be clear that even though campuses do, you know, whether it's administrators or faculty, uh, and for that matter, students, lean more to the left, and decidedly on some campuses, yeah, you're going to see a lot of cases in which the political valence you know, it, it is more left versus right, or left versus other left, which is actually increasingly common. Um, but when it comes, but when there are cases of the right doing it too, you know, we're in many cases the reason why people know about that in the first place. Mm -hmm. Second one was Richard Paxton. Uh, Richard Paxton. I don't actually remember the Richard Paxton okay. case. <laughs> well, that's okay because yeah. I was I was more taken by the story of Mike Adams anyway. Oh which yeah, is yeah, yeah. The most tragic of all. Yeah. Oh, Mike Adams. Okay. So Mike Adams uh, is a. 
Uh, he was someone that I met very early on. I started at FIRE. I was hired uh, about one year out of law school to, mm -hmm. to be the first legal director of FIRE. I was the weird law student who specialized in First Amendment law. And when FIRE was founded, um, the Harvey Silverglate went and found me and I became the first legal director. Um, and I landed to find my apartment at 9, 10 a.m. on September 11th. Um, so pretty, pretty crazy day. And shortly thereafter, I was defending this professor at U University of North Carolina, Wilmington, named Mike Adams. He was formerly a political liberal. He became an evangelical Christian and became much more socially conservative. And when a student on September 11th itself wrote, sent a, a mass email to all students at UNCW saying, basically America had this coming because we're monsters, mm -hmm. um, he, his response was something to the effect of, um, you know, uh, I couldn't disagree with you more, uh, but, uh, but your speech is protected and I respect that, just like, you know, bigoted, overly simplistic speech has been protected, you know, for decades. Um, they launched an investigation of Mike Adams for that, again, unquestionably protected, um, and it was very clear from the very beginning. Um, that's how Mike and I became friends. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm, 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 I'm left-leaning, he's, he, he's more socially conservative. I introduced him to the work of Lenny Bruce. Um, he then credited me for changing his approach to being a conservative advocate. Um, he decided to be much more aggressive and in your face. Right. Um, and so he wrote for Town Hall, he, and he had a very jokey, irreverent style. Um, this was kind of considered, if, if somewhat at times obnoxious, um, the something that was kind of acceptable in American life to be a uh, to be a gadfly for a particular cause, um, who sometimes was very irreverent about it. Um, he uh, during COVID, uh, when he he tweeted um, uh, that he wanted the the governor of of North Carolina to to, um, uh, to lift the restrictions, and his tweet was. Massa, whoever the governor of, of North Carolina was, let my people go. Um, uh, you know, a biblical allusion plus, you know, a, a, a term from 19th century sort of slave speak. The, um, you know, the joke was essentially you're treating us like slaves and, and that essentially we, we, we need to be liberated. Um, and that got him fired. Um, the, he was able to get a, um, uh, a, a uh, retirement package that was not amazing. And, uh, but I also thought he'd be fine because Mike Adams was the most self-confident person, I think, I'd, at least visibly, that I'd ever met. I thought he was completely fine. Um, so I didn't, we had this huge upsurge of cases after the, uh, after the murder of George Floyd in, in, uh, in 2020. So I thought he was the last person I had to worry about. And he got this package that wasn't great, but nonetheless. Um, and he killed himself a week after I contacted him um, in mid-July. And I'd never, I mean, I'd known people who the culture war, just like me, got to so badly they had to be hospitalized. There are some people that I, I think killed themselves in response to it. Mm -hmm. But this was the first time where it was blazingly obvious about what had happened. And that was really a, a, a big slap in the face for us. And you pointed out that he actually had a tax come to his house. Yeah. Uh, charging that they would do things to his wife and kids, or yep. his wife and kids had not done anything. He didn't have a wife and kids. Yeah, that was um, uh, that was something. My last conversation with him, um, and I wish I'd just contacted him <clears> earlier <throat> in mid-July, you know, about a week before he killed himself. You know, he was saying that people were, and it's kind of funny because you know these are th these are activists who are nominally progressive, but right. they were saying that they saw um, uh, activists uh, uh, they saw his wife and children like filleting black men at a protest, like all this really horrifying. 
uh, stuff. And so much so that he actually called the, pol uh, the, the police to say like people were coming to his house. Um, and that's, and knowing Mike too, like the, the, the level it would have taken for him to actually call the police about it, you know, that was kind of stunning. And, you know, he's no longer with us. Worst case scenario. Yep. You made a point a couple of minutes ago that undergrads were the people who were really pushing this culture, mm -hmm. not doctrinal students, but undergrads, which says to me that a lot of these kids came to college mm -hmm. with this already ingrained. They learned it at home, they learned it in high school, they didn't yeah. come there and suddenly as freshmen develop this style. Yep. Yeah, and that's something that we left out of the book Coddling, is where some of these um, ideas about social justice came from in the first place. Because in 2014, they were, they were showing up already believing um, a lot of these kind of um, ideas that you know, free speech is just the argument of the bigot, the bully, the robber baron, the three Bs. They hadn't been taught that it made the gay rights movement, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement possible. Um, they weren't really taught uh, lessons about free speech other than from a very sort of, in my opinion, incorrect point, like, um, ideological point of view. And so we had to figure out where this was coming from. And uh, a lot of that research ended up not making it into the book. But since the book came out, um, you know, the, the uh, multiple factors. One, I do think that it was, there was a lot more radicalization of uh, professors coming out of education schools 20 years ago. Um, so much so that in 2005, we were kind of alone um, battling this uh, um, standard that, that the accrediting body of a lot of the big um, education schools had to abide by, saying that they, graduates would be evaluated based on their commitment to social justice in addition to other, uh, other norms. And, you know, argument at the time, which is still true, is like, that's a political litmus test. You know, like evaluating people to get a, a, a degree based on their, you know, political views is not appropriate. So we were able to defeat that back in 2005, but given that we were one of the few groups to make a peep about this, you already have to be pretty far down the line if nobody else is objecting to a, to a manifest political litmus test. Another factor, I think, was the um, anti-bullying movement. Not that I, I, I mean, I think the anti-bullying movement was past due. I think, I think mm -hmm. that it was a very good thing in a lot of ways. But in 2010, there was, and I'm going to use this term, I believe there was a moral panic about cyberbullying, which was also related to students having cell phones early on. Um, that focused on a couple of cases. Emily Bazelon wrote a book about one, the Phoebe Prince case, uh, that was treated as if it was a clear-cut case that it was bullying that led this um, Irish student to killing herself. And right. she made the point it was much more complicated than that. And, 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 and the students who were arrested were, it was inappropriate. Um, but there were, there were, across the country, there were all these laws passed mandating um, uh, schools having programming on bullying and unfortunately a lot of this programming was very much what doesn't kill you makes you weaker your feelings are always right and l life is a battle between bullies and anti-bullies essentially which is not really what the research shows I mean there are people who are bullied who are also they're called you know, bully bullies um, so I think that one of the reasons why it was so ingrained was partially political beliefs um, that uh, K through 12 teachers had um, that, that it got more intense. Uh, cell phones made a big difference because the way you argue on, on Twitter, the way you sort of win social status is to have that you know, perfect mic drop kind of argument um, that is by necessity almost has to be like overly simplistic. And then of course I think some of the education that, that started really hitting schools around 2011 meant that a lot of students came in not just with ideas um, that I, thought, I think were mistaken, but a definitely a crusader mentality that it's, that it's on us to get rid of all of these, uh, all of these outliers, which is, not, which is something that, that 
every college in the country should have been like, no, 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 no. When you hear someone who disagrees with you on campus or even gives you a provocative opinion, you're not supposed to get them fired. You're supposed to engage. You can, and you can, you can engage, you can argue. By all means, write an article about it. By all means, you know, even protest, uh, 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 even protest it. But the idea that, that stepping ideologically out of line means you get fired is completely incompatible with what higher ed is supposed to look like. Since you've taken us online, you write that the idea of the like button yeah. really did change the way we are because it started kind of this polarization yeah. spiral that we have. And to your point earlier about 30 kids in class engendering 300 complaints, social media has really lit the flame. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, uh, it's kind of interesting because we talk about seven causal threads in coddling the American mind to try to explain what was so different about the students hitting uh, campuses around 2014. And so we talk about political polarization, we talk about paranoid parenting, we talk about the most interesting one uh, that we weren't expecting coming in was the lack of free play. That essentially kids scheduled from uh, you know 6 a.m. To, to, to nighttime aren't getting the kind of practice in actually being autonomous and, and navigating social situations on their own that they badly, badly Need. College was tough enough before. Yeah, exactly. And so they, um, but the, the factor that we think sped all of these, these trends up dramatically um, was social media. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah. In this bastion of free speech right here, mm-hmm. we may think that we know people behind the attacks, but your research shows that of 471 attempts to get professors fired, 164 of them, 35%. Mm-hmm or from the right. Yep. That leaves plenty of room to go around. Uh, moderates yeah. to the left, to the abstract. Were those findings a surprise to you? No, not really. For, for those of us who work on campus, um, it's pretty clear that some of it comes from, the, a lot of it comes from the left, um, uh, some of it comes from the right. The reason why it's not as much coming from the right is because there's very low viewpoint diversity. There's not all that many conservative professors to begin with. Like, so for example, Harvard, you know, is one of the schools that we looked at. And Harvard has 3% conservatives on faculty, and, and that includes both people who, uh, people who define by, as conservative or very conservative at all. And we still got 13 you know, um, attempts to get professors fired you know, in the past couple of, past couple of years. And, and they do, they, they are interesting politically, and includes Ronald Sullivan, who I think was the first um, African-American uh, dean of, of, of a dorm at Harvard. And they fired him for uh, briefly uh, representing Harvey Weinstein. And I get that people could object to that, um, but what the school should have done uh, was tell every student at Harvard, say like, listen, if you're a lawyer, you think about these things differently than most people, that we think it's noble to defend people who are odious. To be willing to do that is, is, is a higher moral calling. I mean, my, one of my best friends is, is a uh, public defender, and, and we don't consider that shameful. That, that's actually a really high, uh, right. high moral calling. And I think if they had actually tried to, tried to educate students, tried to engage them to explain, like, listen, this, we don't consider this to be shameful, um, but instead, you know, they let them be pushed out. We hear the debates recently about the Supreme Court, how it seems to be the Yale elite. Some of your studies are at the elite schools, the Stanfords, the NYUs. Is there really a separation between those schools and an Ohio State? Yes, um, absolutely, because I would say that the the ideology that we talk about in uh, coddling the American mind, uh, and I'm very clear about this. I come from, you know, until I was probably about 11, I was bottom economic quartile. 
Um, and so the class issue is actually very important to me. And we try to be very clear in coddling the American mind is since we are talking a lot about elite colleges, we are talking about kids who wildly disproportionately come from the top 10%, even top 1%. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we focused a lot on things, uh, on attitudes that are being cultivated among, frankly, upper class, over class kids, as, as Michael Lind would call them. Um, the problems faced by kids who are not you know, in, in the upper class and over class are fundamentally different. And I always refer to people to Robert Putman's great book, Our Kids, for example, and, and should be taken very seriously. But the problems on campus do, frankly, come from largely upper class people, at least the ideological ones. So, that, so it shouldn't really be a surprise that on uh, hyper elite campuses like Yale, Harvard, Princeton, um, uh, Stanford, that uh, the problem, those kind of problems are worse. That being said, at schools, one thing I definitely want to say, and this has been an observation uh, that I have where we even have some data on it, but definitely has been consistent. People who go to schools that have a, a sufficient number of working class kids tend to not have these, these same kind of problems, at least to the same extent. Um, I think there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tendency to sort of like bring people back to reality to, yeah. to a degree. That being said, those kind of schools have different kinds of problems. They have the administrator who doesn't think anybody's watching and gets a student or faculty member kicked out, you know, because they don't like them. Like a lot of old-fashioned abuses happen at at, um, at state schools as well. But the hot ideology t tends to be more of a, of a um, uh, of the elite elite. And we have to be concerned about this because, and I think wrongly, very wrongly, we pull too much of our. And I always sound like a Marxist when I start talking this way, but um, of our ruling class from a handful of schools. We're going to go to the audience questions shortly. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, they're, that they're ready already? for you. They're ready oh, for you, yeah. Okay. But I'm going to lob one more grenade because if <gasps> I don't, they will. You mean literally? Um, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the years 2016 and 2020. Mm -hmm. We kind of had some things going on politically in those years. Oh, yeah, sure. Look to 2024 for me. Is this going to escalate? <sighs> um, yeah. Um, not so much a grenade, a, a very valuable question. I mean, you know, I'm a Democrat. I, uh, I definitely think the election of Trump just the same way social media accelerated a lot of things, mm -hmm. so did the election of Donald Trump. Um, a lot of the problems that might have been a slower burn accelerated very fast. There were problems that would have happened anyway, in my opinion, um, but they, they got much more intense much faster. 2024, um, yeah, I, I, I think my, my co-author Jonathan Haidt um, believes that we just went through the last semi-quiet year of the decade. He thinks that we're headed for something really big. I'm a long-term optimist, but short-term, I'm really kind of worried for the country. I mean, I, I live on Capitol Hill. Like, we had uh, our, you know, I was eating dinner in the basement for, you know, on January 6th. We had, you know, cord, cordons on, on either side of it. It was terrifying. And to deal with people who still think it was kind of like no biggie or it was exaggerated, it absolutely was not um, exaggerated. So I think that 2020 was one of the scariest political years of my life. I'm a little bit worried that uh, it, might, it might get even worse later in the decade. I'm feeling slightly more optimistic than I did maybe this time last year, um, but I don't think we're in for peace and quiet. Okay. We'll leave it there. Kay Rodolfi. Wonderful. So we are about to begin audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via live stream at cityclub.org. If you're here in person, please raise your hand and remain seated until a staff person indicates it's your turn to come up to the microphone. Our live stream viewers can tweet questions to at the City Club or text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330 
541-5794, and our staff will try to work it in, into the program. First question. Thank you for being here today. Um, glad you made it back. I'm Kate Klinowski. I'm here representing Kent State University as well as Case Western Reserve University. Um, and I was very curious about your thoughts about social media as being both a way to divide as well as a way to potentially ameliorate some of these great divides we're talking about. So since we're having these like this, that, this or that, these black and white questions, yep. where does social media fit into that? Thank what you. a fantastic question. And is your foot okay? That, that, that looks painful. If I'm turning this way, can you still hear me or do I, do I have to? Yeah, you're fine. Okay. Um, so social media. Um, it's inter th th this is my overall thinking on social media. Uh, so it's very funny when, when people will try to critique my book with Jonathan Haidt um, by saying, well, they're, they're uh, technophobes, and people said that the printing press was going to be super disruptive. And it's like, you mean the invention that led to an increase in the, in the witch trials because it propagated books that led to the Protestant Reformation that led to some of the bloodiest wars in, in, for 200 years? It was, it was a little bit of a chaotic time after the printing press, to say the least. Um, so new, it was basically the definition of a disruptive technology. Um, I think that in a search for quick solutions um, to some of the problems generated by social media, uh, we are not accepting the fact that there's almost nothing you can do to make this period not chaotic. Um, that essentially when you suddenly add, so the printing press was adding millions of people to the human conversation. When you add billions of people to the human conversation, that cannot be anything but disruptive. So I think that to a degree, we just have to accept some of, some of this. And I am much more on, on the side that I think the cures can be worse than, than the disease. I definitely think that disinformation is one of the interesting First Amendment um, you, you know, difficult questions. Uh, but uh, the other side of it is basically you know, deciding what the ministry of truth should be. Um, and guess what? <laughs> we don't have a great record of, of knowing the truth um, as, as it exists. And freedom of speech is part of uh, my friend Jonathan Rausch's great system of liberal science, that essentially it's the way we try to figure out what the world really looks like, because figuring out what the world really looks like is incredibly difficult. So as to whether I think that social media can have a positive influence, Absolutely, because one of the great discoveries in, uh, in human history is, you know, people talk about the Enlightenment. I, I think the Enlightenment is better explained as the discovery of ignorance. It is the discovery of epistemic humility that in the grand scheme of things, my intuitions don't hold up all that well, and that I, I'm wrong about a billion different things, and we need to actually constantly, you know, check with our, um, uh, check with our biases. So I think that a massive system for disconfirma disconfirmation, something that can pull apart any, so this is the negative side, and this is, at, you know, in this case, I'm talking about Martin Gurry's, uh, wrote a great book called Revolt of the Public. Right. My, the way I, I paraphrase him is by saying that social media created an age where, uh, that, that where what you can do with it is overwhelmingly tearing things down. Because in the face of this much criticism and, and these many eyes, you can tear down any person, any idea, or any institution. And that means we don't have it quite wired in right. But with this massive dis, uh, institution for disconfirmation, um, there is the potential to learn things faster than we ever knew before, but we have to be more disciplined in the way we argue. Like some, some of the way social media argues is just 
forgive the expression, BS. You know, it's basically just guilt by association. It's just crude insults. It's just how dare you essentially dressed up. It's ad hominem uh, attacks just kind of um, uh, updated to, to, to the new age. But given how many voices you have in that, from how many different classes you have, from how many different countries you have, from how many different perspectives you have, um, the potential for it to be actually of social good is very much there. In some ways, it already has been a social good because that whole tearing down things, there were a lot of things that needed to be torn down, and, and that's good. Um, but I do, so I do think that, the, that we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater here because like social media um, is gonna be disruptive unavoidably, and it should be, um, but the attempts to fix it, particularly top-down solutions, scare me even more. Great question, thank you. Yeah, fantastic Sir, question. You, you mentioned the uh, loss of uh, unstructured playtime yes. for children. And over the last probably 20 years or so, there's been a concern about a tendency toward uh, what's sometimes referred to as uh, bubble wrap children, yep. uh, children who are being overly protected from various things. And I wonder if you see any causal relationship between the one and the other, or whether there are some of the same things that give rise to both of these tendencies. These seem uh, parallel. Absolutely. Um, you know. We, talk, we have a concept in Coddling the American Mind um, that we call problems of progress, that essentially they're the kind of problems you want to have. Mm -hmm. And in a short book that I wrote called Freedom From Speech, um, I referred to them as problems of comfort. I think that there's arguments for both of those terms. Um, and my argument there was essentially that when you reach the stage of technological advancement and comparative human wealth, um, that people can obsess over making sure their kid is always safe, that means other things are actually going really well. Um, and, but it will need, need to lead to some of these additional problems, the kind of problems that you should be happy to have because it means you're, you're, you're kind of progressing up um, Maslow's hierarchy. Um, that uh, that when, you, uh, when you have those kind of problems, the, um, oh my God that it's, they're, they're the kind of good problems to have. And so the, the ability, the luxury to be able to focus so much on our, on our kids' safety uh, is very positive. And I, and I do think it in part comes from an instinct, and actually, really, actually, not, not just instinct, from the real fact that some of the movements that we've had in American history and in world history for reducing the number of threats to kids have been wildly successful. Um, like wildly so, like the, the, the um, and kids are growing up today in terms of environmental harms, in, t in terms of violence, um, that uh, 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 in a situation that is much safer than it was when practically any of us were, were, were kids, uh, kids ourselves. So I do think that in part the uh, being a little too fixated on the safety of your kids um, to a point where it's actually not healthy for them is the, a good kind of problem to have. But I also think that some of this is due in part to um, uh, political polarization in the sense that we don't live in the same communities with contrarians. Like people tend to live in, in uh, communities that are much more isolated in terms of class, economic class, and also in terms of politics. Right, like-minded. So, yeah, so, so there wasn't as much pushing back with saying it's like, well, you know, my, my great-grandmother could have told me that like insufficient amounts of adversity is actually also not good for you. But that just sounded like stupid old old wives' tales like when I was younger. But it's also obviously true. Your, your grandparents did have it harder than you, they learned. They learned a lot, uh, a lot of lessons uh, from that. I mean, my, my great great grandfather was a serf, for goodness sakes. 
Um, the, so I do think that th these problems come from similar, similar places, um, and I do think that, and we're not saying, you know, send your kid back into the coal mines. What we're saying is that some of the stuff that will actually challenge your children is going to be the stuff that makes them the proudest and the happiest, but also give them the ability to live happily in a world of adversity rather than be terrified of it. How many things can we obsess over before it's too deep into the rabbit hole? Uh, well, if you're anxious, a naturally anxious person like me, you can obsess about everything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, I'm Nigaman Sridhar. I'm a professor at Cleveland State. Um, I, th thank you for your book. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your message. Thank you for having me. Um, and your, your um, point about the lack of free play particularly strikes home. Um, I'm a father of an 11-year-old child, and it is atrocious. Yeah. Uh, but I want to, and you mentioned um, Robert Putnam, and I want to, you know, go to, I just got through his other book, uh, Bowling Alone, um, in which he basically makes the point that civic society is essentially falling apart. People aren't doing their part of participating in society. Yeah. And I think it's very closely linked to what you're talking about in terms of children growing up in isolation, um, you know, only surrounded by social media. What do you think might, uh, might college campuses do in terms of encouraging more civic particip participation getting students preemptively engaged in civic society and use that as, as a little bit of an inoculation to, um, uh, to, to, to some of the things that you're talking about. That's a third fabulous question in a row. That, that's, that, that's really <laughs> great. Um, the, yeah, so Robert Putnam's uh, Bowling Alone, it talks about how the lack of civic associations is harmful to American society, but also to individual happiness, which, which is an interesting um, way to approach it, which I think is almost certainly true. Um, I wish I knew how to get back to a place where people wanted to join um, more uh, associations, particularly ones that cut across um, racial and ethnic difference, but also, to me, this is something I'm always on about, class differences. I, I think that we have way too little exposure. Um, I mean, uh, purple, purple states are actually tends to be healthier in this respect, um, that, that they have uh, sometimes more interaction between people who disagree with, the, with, with each other. I mean, I live in, like, D.C. is great in a lot of ways, um, but it definitely is a place for, that feels very class stratified, and, and although not as badly as Northern Virginia, um, which is uh, amazing. Um, I, so how actually, how you, what you can do to rebuild civil society? I mean, like, some of the most ambitious ideas about it are, for example, having like mandatory service, um, and that makes me kind of uncomfortable because I can see how that would be um, uh, abused. But by mandatory service, to be clear, they're not talking uh, uh, just about military. They're talking right. about things like the Civilian Conservation Corps. But, it, but I, it, the situation has gotten bad enough for, for Americans not actually knowing um, other people who vote for other people or from different parts of the country or for different economic classes that it makes those kind of like top-down solutions um, uh, seem more tempting because I, I would say one of the replacements for our civic society um, is um, and for civil society are the alumni groups for colleges and talk about stratifying and separating people in terms of class and privilege. Um, I mean Stanford, uh, the weird bubble uh, was where I went to the law school and it was it, it, I, I had never heard of two schools. I had never heard of Andover, and I had never heard of Exeter. 
and how many people in my class were actually gone to those two schools? I, it, I was like, went there. well, it, it was one of those things where I was kind of like, oh, this is the conspiracy yeah. everyone's talking about. Like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know about that. So I really wish I had a better answer on how to get back to a civil so civic society, um, but I would love to achieve it. So if, if you have ideas, I'm Greg at thefire.org. I, like, mm -hmm. I, I think it would make a major difference if people had friendships, and also, frankly, that weren't just based around where you went to school and what your politics are. You've already talked to professors. We've got mm -hmm. a college president here. Hi. Are there tips Hi. to uh -huh. give them that they, they can knock down censorship? They sure. can knock down some of these problems? Um, for every alum um, that I talk to, I have a very quick list of things that I ask them to do um, because there's a lot of sense, there's a lot of tech, uh, like um, tendency to sort of throw up your hands and uh, think that there's nothing to be done at some of these schools, particularly among conservatives. And I'm always like, um, okay, before you grouse about this, um, have you done the following five things? And my first one is, you know, ask your school to give up their speech codes. Um, and, and, and we've had great success there. Only about 20% of schools have what we call red light speech codes. Uh, Cleveland State, I believe, is a green light, actually, actually which, is, which is hard to get. Um, the, uh, to stand up for faculty and students when they get in trouble. You should contact your college president and say, like, listen, if you, I'd like to say this in advance. Um, if you're stuck in this kind of situation, I have your back. And because when a college president gets out there early, and says, nope, we're not publishing this person, even if you think what they said was, was, was bad, um, that tends to kill things pretty, not always, but often uh, will kill it pretty early. Um, adopting something like the Chicago Statement, which is a um, academic freedom statement that's updated for the kind of problems we started seeing around 2015. Right. And the two um, the, that you know, are less intuitive, one is poll your faculty and students. Fire's been doing this itself, but um, every school has better access to their own professors, for example, than, than we'd ever be able to get, and it would be very useful to know. I think it would be good to have an outside body do it, not, not us, but like some, someone else do it, um, because then you can make sure it's independent and not just a, a PR whitewash. And then, believe it or not, most schools don't have orientations that explain freedom of speech. They don't explain mm. freedom of inquiry. And, it's, and again, the fact that it's the discovery of ignorance and a lot of your intuitions are wrong is, a, is something that's literally counterintuitive. Um, your intuition is always saying, I'm right, um, in, 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 the, in the back of your head. So you need something and uh, you need some kind of orientation that rather than just tell people that, you know, if you hear this offensive speech, immediately report it to this, uh, this group. And, and, these, and this is real. These are bias-related incident programs on campus. Um, that uh, instead teaches them, listen, if you hear someone have an opinion that drives you nuts, think two things. You know, I'm probably better off knowing that they have that opinion. Mm -hmm. And also, why do you think that? Fair. President Sands, you're supposed to be tweeting out his praise of your school. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, was, I was just taking notes about that. Okay, got it. <laughs> Go ahead. Trisha Quivenen, I'm an adjunct instructor at Case Western Reserve University. Mm -hmm. Back in my parents' generation, and to some extent my older siblings, they took classes in high school, like public speaking, rhetoric, debate, mm -hmm. and um, other classes, civics. Yeah. Um, a lot of those, What's that? A lot of those courses <laughs> have yeah, been removed from the high school lexicon, or they've been made into clubs that are extracurricular activities, not yeah. required. Do you think the return of those kinds of subjects to high school as a requirement for graduation would, would help? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely do think that they would be helpful. I, I used to say that if I had a magic wand, I would say that um, part of your junior year at, at high school would be to um, have a formal debate 
uh, where the rule is you have to take the opposite point of view that you, than what you have on a particular topic. I think that would be very healthy. Um, but even though I'm, you know, I'm a First Amendment big believer in debate, one thing that I, one uh, evolution that I have had is I got I've gotten much more excited about listening programs. And what I mean by that is there, there's this group called Narrative Four, for example. And one of the things that they did was they would have students from Kentucky, from like rural Kentucky, come up to students in the Bronx, um, and they would have them pair off. And by the end of the day, the idea was for each of the students to be able to to talk. Uh, in the first person as if they were the person standing next to them. And I'm like, that builds compassion, that builds empathy, that, uh, that erodes the idea that, that this very human tendency that everyone who disagrees with me is either stupid or dumb, uh, or, or evil, sorry, either stupid or evil are the, are, are the two ones. And I think that those kind of programs are really powerful. Um, I really wish people understood civics. Uh, it, it, is, it is really kind of distressing. I feel like a lot of what, I, what I'm doing is uh, the, the fact that when I go to speak to high schools, I have to explain this very basic idea. Um, I, I talk about the bully, the bigot, and the robber baron as being like the three things people are told, uh, taught today, free speech protects. And it's like, well, got to tell you, the robber barons, the rich people, the rich and powerful, have always been protected because they're rich and powerful. Like that's the way that works. But if your opinion is 50% or more in a democracy, um, if you're a bully or a bigot, then you still got the you still got the power. You literally only need freedom of speech or the First Amendment to protect unpopular opinions, non-majoritarian uh, uh, opinions. And I say this at every high school I speak at now, and they're like, they've never heard it in their entire lives, and that, that really distresses me. So we have a high school curriculum, for example, because you know, we always try to practice what we preach, but I do think when it comes to the way we, um, the way we are teaching you know, future citizens at the moment, we are falling short. Thank you. You'll be happy to know the City Club does sponsor high school debates here. Nice. 48 hours from now in this stage. Championships, right? <laughs> okay, yes, thank you, yes. Hi, thanks for being here. I'm Martina Moore. I'm a professor at John Carroll University, and I'm also a clinical mental health counselor. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, so I want to first of all thank you for your transparency and your honesty um, about your own um, history with that. And I was really impacted um, about what you said about cognitive distortions. I've been really challenging our Office of Accessibility because I've seen a tremendous increase in students um, receiving um, accommodations due to anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it's just been overwhelming. And what I'm challenging them on is that we're really setting up a generation who is not resilient and who does not have the self-efficacy to believe that they can do better. Yes. And so they're looking at me and they're saying, well, you're a clinical mental health practitioner. I said, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely yeah. I am. And I really want to challenge this, that it cannot be that there are five students in my class with a, a dog that they need for their anxiety. Mm. I just, I can't believe that we've increased that much. Yeah. Now, I do know that that is a service that is helpful for some. Sure. But you cannot tell me that we're at a place now where over 20% of my class has to have these accommodations. So when you say coddling, I want to thank you because I do think that we are truly exacerbating um, behavioral health issues with all of this. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Um, that, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and this is the thing that I, that I find that, that makes me so frustrated is that people will look at you know the name of the book and kind of dismiss it as being kind of like oh you're just doing another kids today thing and i'm like no i'm what i'm saying is that partially and to be frank sometimes to save ourselves time and care 
we are tr thinking, it's like, listen, I can just make things, uh, uh, I can change as much around you as possible, but I won't actually try to teach you to live in the world as it actually is. And it's, in my opinion, to be frank, I think it's cruel. Um, it, and, it's, and it's this kind of thing, it's one of the things that, that people who are also being uh, unfair, when we talked about trigger warnings, trigger warnings are, um, are one of those things where they're kind of an article of faith among, among people who have, who have trauma that they're helpful. But so far the research, there's been at least five studies, um, indicate that they're not helpful. Um, there's actually some, some of those studies show that they actually can make anxiety worse. And when people get kind of surprised about that, it's like, okay, um, think about a time when you were a kid, when you were afraid of something and you were panicked about it for a month before you actually did it and went, oh, <laughs> that wasn't that bad. That's what happens to everything if you actually build it up too much. So this isn't about, oh, just get over it. It's about actually empowering them to live in the, live in the world as it is. And I think they will find time and time again, it's, not, it's much scarier in their heads than it is actually in real life. And yeah, and just one, one more thing on that. I, 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 it's kind of funny because like, when people haven't read the book, they, they like to stereotype it in ways that have nothing to do with what, what the book act, 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 actually, actually says. Um, and it just, it, we are doing a, you know, a generation of a, a massive uh, dis, disservice here. Thank you. You have a Twitter question? I do. Yes, we have a member. <laughs> this is, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> We've got a member hoping that you'll comment about proposed legislation in Ohio to ban honesty in education, or as legislation refers to it, divisive concepts. Yep. What do you make of such legislation propping up across the country? Sure. Did I not tell you this question was coming? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we, we discussed this. And it, it, the only surprise there was that there was just one happened in Ohio. Whenever, whenever I get the question about the divisive concept bills, I, the first thing I have to say is, like, please understand that there are hundreds of these bills across the country um, and more every day. Very quickly, I wrote a 5,000 word piece uh, on this because it, it takes, with my lawyer hat on in particular, it, you have to navigate it. As applied to higher education, they are almost always unconstitutional and almost always unwise. However, the reason why I have to say almost is because, for example, there's a North Carolina law um, that is framed just like all the other divisive concept bills, but it only, it only says that you can't uh, force people say, to say things they don't believe. You, you can't engage in compelled speech. There's nothing constitutionally wrong with that, and there's everything wrong with actually engaging in compelled speech. Um, so, but we've been opposing, uh, opposing these laws all over the country. Um, and it's kind of funny. Like when, when you're in these debates on Twitter, it's like, well, where were you on this? And sometimes they'll literally be sending me an article in which I'm quoted. Um, and it's like, we're, we're towards the end of the article. Like we're, we're arguing against it, but where were you on the other 50,000 things? Um, when it comes to the, as applied to K through 12, it does get a little more complicated, but for good reasons. Um, because school is mandatory, because we're a democracy, and because these are children, state legislatures are considered appropriately, and parents are considered appropriately to have a say in what curriculum should be. So when you're dealing with cases about curriculum, um, at least constitutionally speaking, they're, they're, they're on much stronger ground. Um, when it comes to, okay, one other constitutional wrinkle, um, uh, when it comes to what schools uh, what books libraries keep, uh, then it's uh, a Supreme Court case called PICO from um, 1983 or 1982 that says you can't force a, uh, a public school library to remove a book just because they don't like the point of view in that book. Um, and that's a, that's a 1983 case. When it comes to the laws themselves, um, whether or not they're constitutional, 
often, um, well, one, do check what the law actually says first, though, because I have gotten a lot of questions where people are sure a law says this one thing that's actually about, um, it, it, there was a, a bill that people were saying that they couldn't talk about their parents being gay, for example, that students couldn't talk about it, and it actually turned out it was not to talk about gender um, and sexuality before third grade for, for teachers. You can disagree with that, but the, but the presentation of it has been, um, you really have to see the, see the law yourself. I think a lot of the laws that are being passed um, uh, that even are constitutional that apply to K through 12 are much too vague. Um, they eliminate a lot of material that is perfectly relevant uh, to younger people, um, that they're, they're foolish. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I've tried to, I, I wrote something called The Empowering of the American Mind, which is just 10 positive principles that I think we should, the parents should be advocating for rather than going after these weird negative curriculums of things you shouldn't say in K through 12. Things like, you know, things that include care for, genuine care for mental health, things that can include empowering for students, but also concern for individuality of individual students, making sure that their free speech is protected, making sure that you, uh, in, it, uh, give, that you teach them epistemic humility. Um, so that my, my, uh, uh, my preferred approach is to, is to not to say what you you shouldn't do, but be more positive about what you think a, a great K through 12 education would look like. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Lukianoff. Today at the City Club, we have been listening to one of our authors in conversation series forums, featuring Greg Lukianoff, President and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and author of *The Coddling of the American Mind* how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. This book is available for purchase here in our lobby thanks to a cultural exchange. Moderating the conversation today was Rick Jackson, senior host and producer at IdeaStream Public Media. A big thanks to the Cuyahoga Public Library for their partnership on today's forum. We would also like to welcome guests at tables hosted by Case Western Reserve University School of Law, Center for Education Leadership at Cleveland State University, Cuyahoga Community College, Oberlin High School, and Ohio Guidestone. Thank you for being with us today. Be sure to join us in a few days on Friday, March 11th. We will host the 2022 High School Debate Championships. IdeaStream Public Media's Nick Castell will be here with our two finalists, Jeremy Battle of University School and Ella Jewell of Kenston High School. You can purchase tickets to these two forums and learn more about other forums at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Greg Lukianoff and Rick Jackson, and thank you members and friends of City Club. This forum is now adjourned. Thank you.